Scripture today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All right, so today, um, you know, we're going to start a new series today, and, uh, you know, this this past week, or actually a, a few months ago, um, my sunglasses broke. This isn't a profound story, by the way. It's just, I'm just sharing a little bit about how my week was. Uh, you know, my sunglasses broke, and I've, I've been looking for a pair of sunglasses for a while, and it's definitely not the same experience during COVID because, you know, when you go to the sunglass shop, you're, like, wearing a mask, and every time I try on a pair and put it down, you know, the store person has to sanitize them. So, you know, you kind of start to feel bad for saying, oh, let me try this, let me try this, let me try this. I got to be selective in what I try. I don't want to create more work for the store people. And, uh, you know, I'm looking for the right combination of price and comfort and style. And with so many different options out there, uh, you know, I I just waste a lot of time looking for sunglasses rather than actually using them and wearing them. And there are, of course, times where I could use some sunglasses when it's bright and sunny out. And that's a little bit how my week was this week because I didn't have a a sermon lined up. I didn't have like a a text lined up. I didn't have a series lined up. And so this week I spent just a lot of time reading different passages. And, you know, rather than spending, uh, you know, a lot of time working on the actual sermon, uh, I was just flipping through different passages and studying them a little bit and reflecting on it and, and thinking, you know, what should I preach on this Sunday? And so uh, instead of doing something topical, I think initially I was thinking maybe I would do something topical. Um, it's just easier for me to pick a chunk of scripture so that the next passage is chosen for me. And therefore, I don't spend as much time during the week looking for a passage to preach on. And so what I landed on this week is uh, I think I think I want to preach on the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes, of course, it, it comes from the Latin word for blessing. And the Beatitudes, they basically serve as this introduction to one of the most famous sermons, if not the famous sermons that Jesus preached in the Sermon on the Mount, which is, I think, very widely known. And this sermon has, you know, gotten a lot of attention through history. And I quickly found out there's so much material out there written on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, so I have to sift through and sort and read through a, a whole bunch of books on the Sermon on, on the Mount. But as I reflected on the Beatitudes and I, as I started studying this, uh, I, f- I felt like this was the right thing for us to hear from God's word. Now, if you look at phone cameras, uh, you can zoom in or zoom out by a certain factor. So you can what zoom in by 2x or 4x or 8x, and depending on the level of zoom, the, the picture is going to look a little bit different, and the framing of the picture is going to look different. And uh, I think it's it's good to actually look at the Beatitudes from like a very zoomed-in level of 8x, and that's what we're going to do in the future. We'll spend one week on each Beatitude. But I also think it's still important to zoom out a little bit and see the Beatitudes from uh, a broader lens. And so today, for this first sermon in the series, uh, that's essentially what we're going to do. We'll zoom out a little bit, 
and we'll look at the structure and some of the broader themes of the Beatitudes, but also where it's located in not only the Sermon on the Mount, but in the Gospel of Matthew. And as we begin to look at the Beatitudes, I think, you know, very obviously, the first word that stands out is the word blessed. And it stands out because it's used so many times. It's repetition makes it stand out. And the word blessed is, you know, it's a word that we use all the time or Christians use all the time. And we say that we were blessed by something. And what that usually means is we found something to be positive or encouraging to us. But uh, if you really think about how do you define uh, the word blessed, it's, it's not the easiest word to define. And actually, probably the words that we use the most often are probably some of the hardest ones to define. And I think the same applies to the word blessed. If, you, if someone were to ask you what it means, uh, we would probably resort to a description of it, but it would probably be hard to kind of nail in a definition of what does it mean to be blessed. And I looked at a few books and commentaries on the Beatitudes, and of course, they're looking at the Greek word for blessed that's translated into English as blessed. But there's uh, so many different ideas about how we should translate this word. You know, there's a lot of people who seem to translate this word as happy. Um, but, you know, in modern culture, the word happy seems to refer to like a feeling that you generate from within or maybe even a psychological state of mind. And that doesn't seem to convey the fullness of the word blessed or the word what the word is trying to get across. So people critique the <laughs> translation as happy. And they say, no, we should understand this word blessed as um, more in line with flourishing. And so the one who is poor in spirit is the one who is flourishing like this blooming flower and kind of fully becoming what God intends humans to be. And still another person says, no, probably the best way to translate blessed or to think about blessed is about being approved by God. Uh, you, and, you, know, you would think that the simple word blessed would be so easy to understand, but then you try to really think about it and say, what does it mean to be blessed? And you try to define it, and you know it's not so easy. Now, for me, I um, I don't think we have to have a precise definition to really get a sense of what it means to be blessed. And so, I'm actually okay with some kind of combined understanding of all of these things, as long as we understand that being blessed is something that is tied to God Himself. Now, in the Old Testament, a blessing was connected to this idea of being favored. So, if you remember, there's a story from Genesis 27 where Isaac gets tricked into blessing Jacob. And from a modern perspective, it's like a father's blessing doesn't seem to be that big of a deal. But then you actually see how it plays out in God's story and the narrative of God's promise. And God's favor actually follows the line of Jacob rather than Esau as a result of the blessing that Isaac gives to him. So we can say that when Jesus talks about the one who is blessed, it is some kind of combination of being happy and flourishing, uh, and being approved by God, but also there's a sense of, you know, receiving favor from God. And in that way, everybody wants to live a blessed life. But what is so unique about the Beatitudes is that it doesn't show us that the way to blessing is the way that we might expect it to be. You know, Jesus says things like, blessed are the poor in spirit, or blessed are those who mourn, or blessed are the meek, which is then followed by a clause that sounds a little bit like a promise, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, for they shall be comforted, for they shall inherit the earth, and so forth. Now, if we were to write our own set of Beatitudes, or if we were to even write the Beatitudes of maybe some of the values of the culture that we inhabit, what would they say? What kind of characteristics would be described as the one who is blessed? And you know, maybe it would say something like this, blessed are those who are self-sufficient, blessed are those who have successful careers. 
Blessed are those who have their parents' approval, right? Whatever it might be, I'm sure it's a little bit different from everybody, but I think we could say it probably wouldn't look like the things that Jesus is saying here in the Beatitudes. And if so, what that tells us is there is this gap between our understanding of what it means to be blessed compared to Jesus' teaching on what it means to be blessed. Now, there is something that is counterintuitive or paradoxical about these Beatitudes. And, you know, I'm sure many people have read these Beatitudes with a little bit of confusion because it doesn't fit into any kind of worldly paradigm. And yet this is apparently the way to being blessed. And one of the books that I'm reading for this series, it has this great picture, this great phrase to describe the Beatitudes. And uh, the author calls it uh, a rich reservoir of black gold. And by black gold, what he's saying is that the Beatitudes are, uh, like in terms of value, it's this treasure of eternal worth. But at first glance, it has this appearance of darkness, right? Black gold. And when you look at the first half of the statements, that's, that's largely true. But uh, the, this book that I'm reading for the sermon series, it also says that the Beatitudes give us this great vision for human flourishing. And he has this other great illustration of a plow in the fields. And he says, you know, think about a plow in the fields. And just as a plow like breaks up and penetrates the interior of a soil, uh, the Beatitudes are meant to penetrate us with the power of the Holy Spirit. So he writes, it cuts through us, it overturns our ideas, it reverses the obvious, it thwarts our desires, it bewilders us, leaving us poor and naked before God in order to prepare a place within us for the seed of new life. To put it another way, we could say the Beatitudes are basically overturning the norms of the kingdom of this world and offers us an invitation to conform to the norms of another kingdom, namely the kingdom of heaven. And even though plowing might seem to make things messier, if you've ever seen a plow work and turn on the soil, it appears like things are becoming messier, but what it actually does is it creates the soil that will sprout a fruitful new life. Now, one of the major themes, and here's where I'm zooming out a little bit more and connecting it to the ministry of Jesus and the Gospel of Matthew, but one of the major themes in Jesus' ministry and in this Gospel narrative, and we could even say in the Sermon on the Mount, is this theme of the kingdom of God. Jesus came to announce the coming of the kingdom of heaven, which has broken into this age through his death and resurrection. And now Jesus reigns with power and authority as the king of his kingdom. And you see this all over, but um, one of the maybe more familiar passages in the Gospel of Matthew, if you remember the conclusion of the Gospel of Matthew, it ends with Jesus's great commission to his disciples. Now, what does Jesus say before he commissions the 12 to make disciples of all nations? He says this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, right? That's the language of the authority of the kingdom. That's the most important part of the Great Commission, probably, because the only reason Christian ministry can be fruitful at all is because Jesus's kingdom has come and Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. And so what do these Beatitudes have to do with the kingdom of heaven? I do think they serve as this kind of invitation for us to participate and conform to the set of norms that we don't necessarily find in this world, but a set of norms that reflect the kingdom of God. And, you know, there's a little bit of debate as to the structure of the Beatitudes, whether there's eight or nine Beatitudes. And uh, my view is that there are eight Beatitudes. And so... Uh, we didn't look at verse 11, but if you look at verse 11, there's another statement that starts with blessed. 
And, uh, but you'll notice it doesn't really follow the same pattern as what we see here because the person changes from third person to second person. So whereas the eight Beatitudes say, blessed are the ones for they shall, um, in verse 11, it changes and says, blessed are you. Uh, but not only that, uh, if you look at the, the passage, it's kind of like this, I don't know, this sandwich structure where verse 3 and verse 10, it repeats the same phrase, right? It says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I think that repetition at the start and at the end indicates something that the kingdom of heaven is a point of emphasis in these Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, which, you know, the Beatitudes serves as the introduction to the sermon. And when we understand the Beatitudes in view of the kingdom, we understand that, again, it is inviting us to participate and conform to the norms of the kingdom of heaven in order to walk this path of true blessedness. Now, uh, I know that's like a, you know, a lot of theology. So now that we've unpacked, I guess, the basic understanding of uh, this theology, I do want to spend a little bit of time talking about why I think the Beatitudes are important for us, especially in this moment. You know, first, uh, this emphasis on the kingdom of heaven, I think is really important, especially in 2020. And here's why. Uh, this, is an, this is a year of the election. And because of that, and because of the, the state, I guess, of the way politics go, uh, I'm, I'm guessing politics is something that is on everyone's minds. And if you're reading the news, it's like impossible to avoid reading something about politics. And when Americans hear the word politics, it's hard not to think about this two-party system of Republicans and Democrats. Uh, but when I say politics, I actually want to use that word a little bit more broadly and in a, in a more basic way as a reference to power. Now, in the world that we inhabit, uh, the governing state has a certain amount of power, and there's, you know, there's a lot of good debate that revolves around how the state can and should use that power for its citizens. Uh, I would say from the Bible's perspective, uh, I think we can say uh, that the role of the state is the right administration of justice so that we can lead, lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And that's something Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, which is also the reason he gives for why Christians should pray for kings and people in high positions, because this is something that is good and pleasing in the sight of God to have um, <clears throat> a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. On the other hand, is, has there ever been a kingdom or a state in the history of this world that really has administered justice perfectly? No, I don't, I don't think there has. Uh, there's been a range in terms of how well certain states can administer justice for its citizens, and even in the American context, which you know is a decent system of justice, justice is not administered perfectly. And that's a large part of the frustration of the black community who have seen disparities in the way justice has been administered. Not only that, but uh, in our system, wealthy people who can afford better attorneys uh, probably means that justice is not necessarily administered the same for everyone. Now, in the American system, citizens have the power to elect political leaders and representatives, and it's important to exercise that right and engage in public life. You know, actually right in front of me, I have my uh, mail-in ballot for uh, New Jersey. And so I intend to uh, participate as a citizen and vote and things like that. I've been called for jury duty, and uh, I actually don't try to shirk jury duty. I think it's an important part of being an American citizen and to, to serve. And uh, I was the foreperson of the jury <laughs> when I did jury duty, which was like a kind of a cool experience. So um, don't 
don't take what I say next as like, it doesn't matter whether we participate in public life or not as Christians. Uh, but at the same time, I think we have to remember politics is not the ultimate answer to all our problems, right? Christianity doesn't align with a single political party or even a, a single system of governance. Um, Christianity is not going to neatly fit into any of these things. But at the same time, Christianity is not apolitical. Christianity is incredibly political. And we know this because the language of the kingdom tells us that Christianity is not apolitical. Christianity is very political, but its politics is one that transcends this two-party system in America. A Christian's highest allegiance is not to any political party, but to, to the king who reigns over the kingdom of God. And Jesus is that king who reigns over us, and we are citizens of his kingdom. So in the end, Jesus is the one who ultimately will administer the perfect justice that we are seeking and looking for, because he is the perfectly righteous one. Not only that, but Jesus as our king is the one who demonstrated the highest level of humility and sacrifice and love for his people, for his citizens, because he was the king who died on a cross so that we could become citizens of heaven. And, you know, that's our ultimate political home. And since this kingdom is both present and future, we are simultaneously living in the kingdom, but also looking forward to the future consummation of this kingdom. We simultaneously reflect the norms of the kingdom as outlined in the Beatitudes, but we also look forward with hope for a kingdom that is to come where King Jesus will execute the perfect and right administration of justice and give us the everlasting peace that we all long for. So during an election year like this, and especially probably a contentious election year like this, of course, engage politically, uh, vote, uh, do all those kinds of things because uh, it's important and there are important issues in the country right now. At the same time, recognize that there is a limit to the politics of this world. And regardless of who wins the election, that person will never take us to where we ultimately want to go or need to go. And politics will never give us what we ultimately need. That promise is only fulfilled in Jesus as he not only announces, but brings the kingdom and reigns in his kingdom over us. Uh, the second thing I want to say about the Beatitudes, why it's probably important for us is, you know, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, the Beatitudes actually call us to live uh, a different life. It calls us to reflect different values and different norms because we're not ultimately citizens of this world. And so we shouldn't reflect the values of any kind of uh, political party in this world. But ultimately, we want to reflect the values and the norms of a kingdom that um, is in heaven. And that's where I think it'll be helpful to spend a week on each single beatitude. Uh, we should think about what it means to be poor in spirit. What does it mean to mourn? And um, I don't think it's just mourning about bad things happening, but especially mourn for our sin. What does it mean to be meek? What does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? What does it mean to be merciful or to be pure in heart, to be peacemakers or to be persecuted for the sake of righteousness? Well, of course, all these things require humility and compassion and integrity and courage. 
And, you know, if we, we continue to read the Sermon on the Mount, the next part is actually that passage about being salt and light in the world, which is really about how do we live as a witness to the kingdom? How do we do that? I think the Beatitudes show us how we do that. If we belong to the kingdom of heaven, then we ought to reflect the values of the kingdom of heaven. And as we go through these Beatitudes, um, you know, what I'm going to ask is, let's really go through it reflectively and ask ourselves, whether we look like we belong to the citizens of the kingdom of heaven or to this world, because ultimately it becomes a question of discipleship. Who are we following? And the sermon begins with uh, his disciples sitting by Jesus' feet. And so in likewise fashion, maybe we can imagine ourselves as disciples sitting under Jesus' feet as he preaches to us in the Sermon on the Mount. Let's pray together. Uh, God, we, <clears throat> uh, we find these Beatitudes um, you know, challenging in many ways, comforting in many ways. You know, it does a lot of things to us. Uh, but um, you know, I do sense that, especially in this year and in the context that we live in, uh, it's all the more important to hear um, the things that uh, Jesus preached, uh, especially in light of uh, his kingdom. And help us to really fix our eyes upon, uh, upon you, uh, in the midst of everything that's going around us, because not as a way to escape, uh, but really because, um, Jesus, you are the anchor of our soul that can help us to endure and live righteously and live um, as true followers uh, of Jesus uh, in the midst of, you know, all the wounds, all the problems, all the conflict, all the division, um, all the ugliness um, that we see. Um, we really want to be different. Um, and you call us to be different. You know, we really want to root our citizenship and our belonging, uh, not in any worldly ideology or not in any kind of uh, political system, but ultimately we want to root our sense of belonging and our highest allegiance uh, to our King Jesus who reigns over his kingdom in the kingdom of heaven. And uh, it's in his name that we pray. Amen. <clears throat>